calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. What are the economic and political implications of the rise of shale gas production? This is the topic of our interview. I'm Usman Hath from CFA Institute, and I'm joined by Peter Zehan, who runs his own firm, Zehan on Geopolitics. He's a geopolitical analyst, and he frequently appears in international news networks to share his insights on issues like shale gas production. So, welcome, Peter. My pleasure. So, give us some sense of the rise of shale gas production. It truly has been revolutionary. Uh, the merging of the two technologies of hydraulic fracking and horizontal drilling have allowed into the industry to tap in a completely new type of energy resource. Uh, it will obviously be replicated internationally over the years, although it'll probably take quite some time outside the United States. But in the United States, it has had a transformative effect on not just the energy industry, but on the electricity sector and very soon in manufacturing as well. Excellent. And what has been the impact on the price of natural gas and its consumption? Uh, at first, people were really excited because we were thinking, finally, natural gas prices are going to come down to a more reasonable range. But what they discovered was that the shale gas could be brought on so quickly and in such large masses that it completely destroyed the natural gas market. Uh, right now, prices have recovered somewhat. They're at, at four thousand, or excuse me, they're at four dollars per thousand cubic feet. Uh, but we briefly had periods of negative prices in a number of markets. Uh, the complication with natural gas is it's not like oil. You can't put it into a truck or a bucket and easily transport it from place to place. You have to have a dedicated pipeline infrastructure that takes it from fixed points of production to fixed points of consumption. And if you're not on that network, you can't use the gas at all. And so the price variants are extraordinarily different in different parts of the country. So in areas such as northern Texas, where there are three major shale gas production zones, uh, prices are almost negative. But if you're in the southeast, which is only about 1,000 kilometers away, natural gas prices are almost four times what they are at the national average because there's no easy access to it. And that's leading to a bifurcation of the market across the country and making sure that some parts of the country have incredibly cheap energy and others aren't benefiting at all. And you've covered this briefly, but you know, tell us more about what are the factors behind the rise of shale gas production. There are two technologies that have made this possible. The first is horizontal drilling, which allows you to send out several dozen, perhaps, drills horizontally out at a very great depth, covering a much broader area within a formation. And the second is hydraulic fracking, where you put in some sort of liquid, typically water, that cracks open the formation and allows the gas to get to the surface. Uh, the the way the technology has evolved and the way that the markets are pushing it now, though, is not actually going after the natural gas because the gas is now so cheap. Instead, it's going after the oil. And in this, you actually do still want a natural gas-heavy reservoir because while you can frack open a formation to get whatever happens to be in it, you still need pressure to bring it to the surface. And if you have a formation that has both oil and natural gas, the natural gas provides pressure that assists with that. 
So there actually have been almost no wells drilled in the last 12 months of producers going after the natural gas. They're all after the oil. And which countries do you think will come out winners and losers from, you know, because of the rise of shale gas production? The biggest winners are, of course, are those who are going to be able to copy the technology quickly. Unfortunately, that's a very, very short list of states. In order to develop a shale infrastructure, you need four things in place. First of all, you have to have a lot of capital. This is more capital intensive than even traditional energy production. So that already eliminates most of the developing world. Second, you have to have a pre-existing infrastructure in place. Natural gas can't be transported easily. So if you don't have that network in place, it's going to require a decade to build it. Third, this isn't easy work. So you need thousands of technocrats who are familiar with a number of different issues in geology and pressure physics in order to produce that. And so most state-owned companies the world over don't have that kind of thick experience base. And then finally, you need a lot of water, which eliminates the Middle East almost completely. Uh, there really is only one country in the world that meets all those four requirements, and that's the United States. Uh, the closest runner-up is going to be Australia. And that's simply because, coincidentally, they have happened to overlay an infrastructure on an empty area quite by accident going after conventional reserves. But even for Australia, it's probably going to be 10 years. As for losers and winners, uh, the biggest winner outside the United States is far and away Mexico. Uh, Mexico already has nine major pipeline projects under construction that will bring American natural gas into Mexico. And so over the course of the next probably three to five years, you're looking at the Mexicans getting half of their natural gas demand from the United States. Uh, biggest losers in the short term are probably the Canadians because they were already hardwired into the American market. And when natural gas was at 10 and $15, that was fantastic. Natural gas is at two and four, it's not so fantastic. And so you're seeing American power companies and chemical companies in the Midwest of the United States doing wonderfully buying Canadian gas at cut rate prices. Internationally, the situation gets more complex. For the Middle East, economically, there's not much of an issue here. The Americans, if they do get into natural gas exports in liquefied form, are going to be competing in Europe. So not a lot of direct market impact for, for the, the Arabs of the Middle East. That's different, though, for the Russians. Uh, the Russians are the world's largest export of natural gas. Almost all of their exports go to Europe, and they're charging between $15 and $25 based on their client. The Americans can get natural gas and sell it for half that. And so anyone in Europe who is used to having the Russians use energy politics as a political tool all of a sudden is seeing that lever evaporate. And the Americans are coming in with cheap gas, uh, relatively limited quantity, but more than enough to, to crack the market apart. Let's discuss a bit more on the politics of it. If and how will it change American foreign policy? The United States is not going to become oil self-sufficient because of shale, but it's already natural gas self-sufficient and is becoming aware of the mass surplus it's going to have. Uh, this is leading to starkly lower electricity prices in large portions of the United States. And if you take that into account, the Americans are starting to look at the international system differently. Traditionally, the Americans don't like dealing with international politics. It's not hard to see why. Uh, for most of their history, well over 80% of their GDP has been generated at home. In terms of the major economies, there's only four countries in the world that actually have a smaller international profile than the Americans as a percentage of GDP. And so anytime the Americans can shut themselves off from the rest of the world economically, they try to. 
And shale is making this possible. Uh, it's not just the exports. It's the concept that the country is going to be able to seize its energy destiny and become less and less dependent on the rest of the world. So while it's still going to be importing oil, Canada is going to be able to supply most of that. So probably within 10 years, the Americans aren't going to be getting any crude oil from outside the Western Hemisphere. And that is going to lead them to question the degree of involvement that they have in the rest of the world. Now, for countries across the world who have basically made their entire strategic policy dependent on, American, on what the Americans will do, this is potentially damning. So, for example, uh, Western Europe and China are successful in economies largely because they have near unlimited access to the American market. That market access is based on the American perception that they need to be engaged in the world. You remove that perception, and all of a sudden the market access is potentially up for grabs. In the Middle East, it's more of a security question. If the Americans don't think that they need to police the, the world's waterways in order to protect energy flows, then all of a sudden the alliance with the Arab states of the Persian Gulf are thrown into question. And it's going to be up to the Arabs of the Persian Gulf to keep the Americans engaged. But how do you do that if the Americans aren't interested in energy? So you said that the rise of shale gas would probably lead to lower involvement of U.S. in the international arena, at least on the political side. But would there be another reason to actually maintain or perhaps even increase the level of engagement with the, with the rest of the world? American foreign policy has traditionally been based on a balance of power model. Japan versus China, Pakistan versus India, the Arabs versus Israel. Two of those relationships are suddenly open question. The balance between the Israelis and the Arabs has basically collapsed because all of the Arab states that border Israel are either going through a civil war or some sort of civil disturbance that is preventing them from acting internationally. So the United States no longer feels the need to manage that. Israel is contained by geography, and while it may be a persnickety ally, it's not like it can cause direct threats to the American system. So the Americans are checking out of that part of the region. That just leaves the Persians versus the Arabs. And because of the way the civil war looks like it's going to suss out in Syria, the Americans look like they're checking out of this one as well. We see powers like Turkey and Saudi Arabia raising up and taking a larger role in how this region is managed. And to have those two powers counterbalance in Iran is fantastic, because that means the Americans don't need to be involved. So as long as none of the powers in play cross any red lines as far as the Americans are concerned, for example, starting to torpedo tankers in the Gulf, the Americans really don't see a reason why they should take an aggressive position. And about the only other thing that the Arabs of the Gulf could offer the Americans is investment money. Well, if you're the Arabs of the Gulf, you're going to put your money in the, Amer in the United States because the dollar is relatively stable, long-term growth prospects are pretty good. But that's not enough to bait the Americans into a long-term relationship. Uh, I think that the Arabs of the Persian Gulf need to start looking elsewhere. Given what you've said and the implications, such as the reduced uh, American engagement with the rest of the world, what are some of the things that professional investors managing their portfolios should be watching in the context of rising shale gas production? I wouldn't use the term reduced American engagement. I would use the term reduced American management. Uh, in the periods where Americans turn isolationist, they actually become more militarily active because they're not trying to maintain the balance of power, they're just going out to wreck things every once in a while. And so you'll probably actually see the Americans more militarily active in the next decade or two, despite the fact that they don't maintain their strong links to some of their traditional partners. From an investment point of view, that means you really have to be on your toes. Because when the Americans 
go into an area because they're angry, they don't leave a lot standing. And they do, it does not matter to them what the international environment at the time is. So think, for example, back in 2002, the, the Peta strike was going on. Uh, oil prices were rising rapidly, but that did not make the Bush administration hesitate in the slightest on the invasion of Iraq. Uh, an engaged America has more constraints. An isolated America has fewer. So anyone who's looking at the investment environment needs to be looking at how the Americans perceive the world and figuring out what they might be going after. And it won't be the traditional target set. Uh, countries that are more powerful, for example, Persia, for example, Pakistan, all of a sudden might be targets in this new era that wouldn't be in an era where the Americans felt they needed to manage things actively. So you're looking for sectors in terms of long-term growth where the Americans are a big presence. So a lot of consumables, a lot of durables, uh, things that the Americans buy year in, year out. On the flip side, if you're looking for prospective investments in frontier markets, you want to make sure you're looking at places where the Americans aren't likely to be agitated. So events in the Western Hemisphere, it's been a long time since the Americans have militarily intervened there, might be worth considering. Even markets that have been ignored for quite a while, like Argentina, and for good reason. But if that's not going to be a target of American iron, it's worth a second look. On the flip side, markets that are in the Middle East region that traditionally have enjoyed American protection, that includes everything in the Arabian Peninsula, might become a little bit more dicey, not because the Americans are going to come knocking, but that implicit protection that has always been there is going to be lifted. How long do you think it will take before the full implications of the rising shale gas production did play out? It's difficult to answer that. At present, the U.S. Department of Energy has largely given up on coming up with forecasts for what level shale gas will be at when, because every six months they find out that the numbers have been completely invalidated and are far too conservative. Uh, particularly since about half of the natural gas that's being produced in the United States is coming from shale wells, and the vast majority of that is now considered waste gas, because it's just people after the oil and they just dump the, the natural gas in the system afterwards. The speed that things are going, I would expect to start seeing serious evolutions in American foreign policy within five years. But because of the volumes of energy we're talking about here, this could easily last another generation. So finally, how would you summarize your thoughts on the geopolitical implications of the rise of shale gas production? We're only at the beginning. We are looking at a new set of technologies that applied in a new way are changing the way that the world produces energy. <clears throat> which is probably going to lead to secularly lower energy prices over the long run, because when we run out of shale, we can just go back to conventional formations. When we run out of shale, we can then go back to offshore. All the technologies to continue the energy types that we've seen in the last 20 years are going to come back, come back in force. It's just that it'll be complemented by this new source of energy. But for the first 10 to 20 years of this process, the Americans are the only ones that are going to be producing it. And so all of the unpredictable nature that the Americans become famous for in international affairs are now going to be underlaid by the American belief that they actually don't need the rest of the world. It's going to be a dangerous time. It's going to be a dangerous time. That was Peter Zehan on the geopolitical implications of the rising production of shale gas. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Thank you, Peter, for joining us. My pleasure. And thank you for watching.
Copyright 2013 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.